I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the 2019 Vision Series. The world around us will always seem to oscillate between seasons of calm and madness, and as we walk the road of discipleship, many will fall away. What does it mean to strengthen our resolve against the chaos of life in the world and follow Jesus come hell or high water? Open to Second Timothy, chapter four. Second Timothy is a short little book in the New Testament. If you need to consult the table of contents, feel free. On July twenty-six of twenty nineteen, a once famous Christian author and pastor posted a photo of himself on Instagram. So far, nothing unusual. In it. He looks out on a beautiful wilderness. All the Instagram staples are there. There's lush scenery. There's a blue sky and a mountain. There's a, the person that's p- doing the posting, cramming themselves into the image, you know, acting natural, leaving the beholder to ask. So he just <laughs> asks someone, here, take a picture of me staring at this mountain while I pretend to act natural. And, yeah, he must have done that. Again, all very normal so far. The other more sinister Instagram staple is also accounted for, the crumbling veneer of forced and dishonest positivity. The photo's uh, caption admits that the author has, at this point in his life, lost his faith, is divorcing his wife, shattering the, the family that housed their children, and all of this as a big, bold, beautiful adventure. And... It reads like, here I am in the picture, the story of me. Things may look like they're falling apart at the seams, but really they're quite wonderful, better than ever before, actually. My ex-wife is better than ever. Our kids are better than ever. I'm better than ever. It was deconversion by selfie. The rest of the feed follows suit. Selfies in front of murals. Selfies at marathons, selfies before white brick walls, each of them with all kinds of flowery prose about the good life, a life without Jesus, the great adventure of it all. And news of this man's deconversion made for some depressing headlines and at least one rousing argument that I had in one of my graduate classes where my attention was drawn to this particular quotation amidst all the, what I thought was kind of asinine rambling of that first controversial selfie. And he was describing his parting with Jesus, and he wrote this, and I quote, The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. Now, noteworthy figures are rushing to the internet to comment on this great tragedy. Everyone remain calm. A semi-noteworthy figure has posted a deconversion selfie. Don't panic. And I was thinking... Panic about what? I sound cynical, obviously, about the whole thing at the moment, but believe me when I say I never enjoy deconversion stories. I hate them. I don't take them lightly, but I do expect them at this point. I've been watching a similar turn of events for most of my life, Jesus as a fad diet. Fad diets, apparently, doctors argue, may be effective in yielding fast, even flashy results, but they are not a viable solution for sustaining long-term health. On a similar note, I have beheld in my relatively short time on earth legions 
of fevered converts brought up in Christian households or churned out by youth cultures and youth camps, stirred to frenzy by what may very well have been genuine encounters with God and God's Spirit. They ran and then ambled along the road of discipleship until they fell on every single one of the predictable obstacles along the way. The problem of evil, for instance. Why do bad things happen in the world? Or biblical illiteracy. Why is the Bible so weird? Or questions about things like the doctrine of hell or sexuality or about the Bible's frustrating tendency to fall short of modern woke ideology. And this should come as little surprise given that modern woke ideology can't seem to adhere to modern woke ideology, creating what even uh, Barack Obama recently described as a progressive circular firing squad. In the desperate scramble to tick all progressive boxes, virtue signaling, cancel culture, inevitable contradictions in the outrage culture, groupthink, make it seem like no one is woke enough and maybe we can't keep this up. I don't know. Seems exhausting. And so the world often seems like it's lost its collective mind, like faith in Jesus is becoming collectively untenable, like more people bail than hang around, like a lot of the stuff we believe would incense the word police, especially in the culture of the Pacific Northwest and the greater Portland metro area. And all of that often feels unprecedented, like this is happening to us, we're the first generation. For some, a nervous anxiousness hangs in the air. How long can we keep this up? What are we doing? Where are we going? But really, it only seems like something new. It's always been this way. Late in the story of the Bible, we meet an interesting character called Paul. Uh, The guy had been persecuting and killing members of a burgeoning new movement called The Way which was made up of disciples of an executed criminal called Jesus. So already it's weird. But these disciples, students of this executed criminal, some of whom had never even met the guy in person, were absolutely convinced that this executed criminal had died and then come back to life and was therefore a reliable source on the nature of life and death in the world, which kind of makes sense. You have a guy saying, look, they're going to kill me, but then God will bring me back to life because the stuff I say is true. So then he dies, he comes back to life, and people figure, huh, the story kind of checks out. And these were people who would have known, by the way, if Jesus did not come back to life. They could just check the tomb. It was right over there. Everyone knew the story and where it was. And they stood to gain absolutely nothing aside from persecution and imprisonment and death by spreading a rumor that they knew to be untrue. So historians have a real pickle on their hands, admittedly. Somehow this movement started based on a thing that doesn't usually happen, by the way, a guy dying and coming back to life, but there you have it, and Paul wasn't into it. In fact, he belonged to the very group of religious leaders that got this Jesus guy arrested and killed, so now he's hard at work trying to stop this annoying movement from growing, and he, Paul, has an incredible encounter with Jesus and against all odds becomes one of his disciples in the process. It's an insane story. He travels around the ancient Mediterranean talking about Jesus and planting churches. It was a whole thing. He gets arrested several times along the way, is near death several times along the way. And during one of those incidents, 
he sends a letter to his young friend and his protege called Timothy because Paul believes that he is this particular time, like Jesus and the apostles, nearing the time of his own execution. He's going to die pretty soon. So the letter he sends Timothy is full of specifics. It's got names and details and churches anchored in a time and a place long since past. But interestingly, the chaos encircling the churches of the first century sounds strangely familiar. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with the very first verse. Totally. Totally. That's all you can say sometimes. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I would give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, ordinarily, uh, we'd take a text like this one and we would unpack it word by word, line by line, but for the past few weeks, like I said, we've been in our annual vision series, a time to remind one another exactly what we're doing here and why as we look out on another year as a church. So don't close your Bibles just yet. We'll come back to 2 Timothy once more before we're done. But forgive the painting with broad strokes. I want to draw something in particular out of the text this evening. As long as there has been the way, those apprenticing Jesus, embracing and embodying the lifestyle of Jesus, the way has known opposition both inside and out. Jesus himself taught openly that his way of life would not be embraced by everyone and it would not be sustained by everyone who signs up. I think of Jesus' parable of the sower, if you know that story. In it, a man goes around sowing sets of seeds. There's four altogether. The first set gets thrown down. Birds eat it right away. And then the second burns up in the sun as soon as it grows. The third grows, but then weeds grow also and choke it out. And then finally, the fourth set, against all odds, actually grows into a harvest. The parable is about the kingdom of God, something Jesus talked about more than any other thing. Now, Think about this, God's triumphant renewal of all things, the inbreaking kingdom of a new humanity, a broken world finally restored. How to best capture the power and majesty of this concept in metaphor. Could, you could use something like bronze chariots or a, a stampede of buff warriors or maybe like a tidal wave or a hurricane, something natural. But instead, Jesus goes with a farmer who is planting handfuls of seeds, most of which don't grow. One scholar observed this of the surprising nature of this metaphor. He wrote, The kingdom of God that Jesus brings is present, surprise, <laughs> in our weakness, in seeds. Human beings do not like Jesus' low-profile and nonviolent way of representing God in the world. They want a more spectacular, macho, realistic, and effective Savior. And that is why the great majority of the human race will always, if even subtly, reject Jesus. This, I realize, sounds like a strange presupposition on which to build the movement that will change the world, but really, it all comes down to your understanding of Jesus, the reason that we're here at all, and your understanding 
of church. And we have lots of different ideas and paradigms about what church is and what church is for. Some of them are right at the forefront of our consciousness and others we kind of carry around somewhere in the back. For some, church is a social contract. This was my paradigm growing up in the Deep South in a Southern Baptist church. Um, you don't show up for community per se, though you don't mind community, that's fine. There's not a lot of change or growth to speak of, but church is what you do, right? It's the thing that you do. It's what we've always done, so we keep on doing it. And really, though that's easy to pick on, it's not all bad. God, how I wish more disciples of Jesus maintained the disciplined faithfulness to show up week after week regardless of outside circumstances and emotional dispositions. The disciplined faithfulness to simply say, no, we go to church. That's non-negotiable. That is one aspect of what it means to belong to this community. But it's obviously a lot more than that. For others, church is an event or a social club. It's a Sunday night thing or a Sunday morning thing. It's a weekend event or a weekday event around a table if you're in a community or a small group or a house church. And maybe both are just fine. Maybe both are even great. But church is mostly like a place to sing songs and feel good and hang out with friends and hear a half-decent TED Talk sometimes. It occupies a specific calendar appointment. You go on this day and you have a good time, drink the coffee, hang out, say hi, stuff like that. And it's certainly true that there is a life rhythm to church. It happens on the calendar. It happens in a place. And to me personally, it is a lot of fun. It recurs. There is a beautiful routine to church. But in this understanding of church, at least this as the only understanding of church, the whole thing inevitably, be, inevitably becomes a product for you to consume. So that you pick the church you like best with the comfiest chairs and the nicest sound system and the coolest speaker and the band that plays your particular types of songs and your preferred style. And it's like a buffet. You take the things that you like, you leave the things that you don't, you show up on Sunday, but not to the community thing. Or you show up to the community thing, but not on a Sunday. You don't pitch in because it's a service. It's being provided for you. If anything bothers you or isn't quite to your liking, if there's ever conflict or anyone in leadership or in your community kind of drops the ball, no big deal. You just head to the next location and move on. But there are others who take church very seriously, and for some of them, it's not a product to be consumed. It is no less than a political uprising. So on the right, it's the, you know, what we think of the uh, far right-wing uh, Christian, evangelical Christianity, kind of a political struggle to take America back for God was the language they used to use. Legislate and impose our morality and our worldview on everyone, regardless of what they believe or don't believe. We want to be on top, in charge, the most powerful, the loudest, the best. On the left, it's a different kind of political battle. It's one for mostly social justice. Fight the power, a means to do battle against social and political corruption, maybe even against the less enlightened churches. It's a place to hang political signs and rainbow banners, a place to meet before the next protest or rally or march. And there is certainly a warfare dimension of church and absolutely a social justice dimension of church. But in the scriptures, it is a spiritual battle. In the language of Paul, it's not against flesh and blood at all, but it's against the powers of darkness behind the flesh and blood corruption in the world, things we call the world, the flesh, and the devil. So there are, you see, aspects of some of these things that ring true, but I would argue that none of them quite catch the point that the church is, in reality, to be an alternative society. It is a family with a way of life, 
who walk together as they learn the teachings of Jesus and put them into practice. In his book, Reappearing Church, Mark Sayers writes about a gentleman called Douglas Hyde. He was a British journalist who came to faith in 1948 while he was working as an editor for the newspaper of the British Communist Party. And when Hyde abandoned the Communist Party to join the church, instead he was shocked and disappointed to find that the church was disastrously less motivated for change than the communists were. And he thought of how the communists approached their own community, who they pursued and how they pursued them. And though he no longer agreed with the philosophy of the party, he came to believe that their approach was actually better suited for the church. And I agree. This was their approach or the way that they looked at their community. First, they looked for those willing to be trained. Anyone and everyone is welcome to wander in and out of this building on a Sunday night, and they do, to take their time exploring this place here and and in the story of Jesus and what they think about God and why. But for those of you who call Van City home, who are part of this family proper, there has to be a preparedness or nothing happens. We're not here for an event. We're not here because of a social contract. We are here to train in the ways of Jesus, and we take it very seriously. Secondly, they looked for, the British Communist Party looked for those that were willing to be changed. Practicing the way of Jesus, the journey of discipleship, is a journey. It was called the way for a reason, because we are going somewhere. If you show up uninterested or unwilling to become someone else, someone more like Jesus over time, this whole thing won't work. It is little more than an event. Thirdly, and this one is huge, up front... They asked for commitment, sacrifice, and a willingness to embrace unpopularity, prepared for the unreliable and uncommitted to walk away. I love to tell this story. I wasn't there for it, but I love to tell this story about uh, Cam, who leads the communities here at Van City. Um, He had coffee with a local pastor. The two of them were kind of swapping ideas about church and community and how they do things, we do things. And when asked, Cam kind of mentioned how we approach uh, things at Vance City, about how we think of membership, like I was saying before, as coming on Sunday, being in a community, being at both places every week to the best of your abilities, doing the practices, spiritual discipline, serving, giving, all that kind of stuff. And this guy laughed and said, good grief, that's a high bar. We would never get anyone to do those things. And Cam was like, well, honestly, it is a tough sell, let me tell you. But that's, that's what we came here to do. And believe me, the unreliable and the uncommitted do indeed walk away. Fourth and fifth, students did not come to be spoon-fed. They came with the desire to eventually become teachers themselves, and students would be expected each week to put into practice what they were learning. Again, this isn't a provided service. Each one of us is here to learn and to contribute, to give more than we take, and in doing so, to grow in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Noting all this, Douglas Hyde was amazed that though the size of the Communist Party paled in comparison to the size of the church, the Communist Party was mobilized and flourishing while the church was sad and dejected. And observing all this, Mark Sayers wrote wrote this, one person's beleaguered minority is another's dedicated, committed core. It's all a matter of perspective. With a wide enough lens, it will always seem as if the world has gone nuts and the people are abandoning Jesus in droves 
that opposition to Jesus is at an all-time high. This has been going on since Jesus himself walked around ancient Palestine gathering up disciples. And people bail or reject Jesus for reasons that frankly make, kind of make sense and for reasons that don't. There are and have always been smart, moral, educated, reasonable people who do not believe in God or who do not practice the way of Jesus or who practice a way of life or spirituality or religion that is not the way of Jesus, that is counter the way of Jesus. That's no surprise. That's a given. Whole other conversation. But the world of deconstruction, the thing that I began uh, mentioning, is a very different thing, and it frustrates me for that reason. Now, I want to offer a metaphor for perspective. I think it's funny. You may not, but go with me on this either way. Imagine that you have a room full of musicians. Some of them are experts. Some of them are amateurs, but they're all musicians. They can all play to some degree. Now, imagine that in this room of musicians... There are a few who are classically trained. They're uh, like Eric. They're educated in music theory. They're talented. They're capable. They actually know the things that they're saying. They don't just pretend like I do. They know their stuff. But you also have some musicians who, while talented and capable, are not trained formally. They can't read music. They don't know theory. Maybe they're more DIY or self-taught kind of thing. Now imagine that in this room full of musicians, a conflict arises. One of the more uneducated musicians is looking down at a piece of music that he can't read, and he says, you know what, I'm having a lot of trouble with this. Another musician steps in and says, what, Tru trouble with what? He says, this, this, gesturing at the whole room at this point. All of this, it's like, how do we even know that this stuff on this paper is really even music, you know? And another person pipes up, you know, I've been thinking that exact same thing for a while now. There could be anything on that paper. We don't know. So a little rabble starts forming. Someone raises the stakes and says, listen, if we're going this far, I've got to be honest, I have never believed in drums my whole life. I don't think that they're real. They hurt my ears. It's insensitive. A lot of hearing loss has actually been done by drums. They don't seem uh, to be with the times. They're outdated and unnecessary. So the others, you know, enjoying the camaraderie, decide to go with it. Dang, they've got a point. Drums are pretty loud. So now at this point, the disturbance is such that other musicians, the ones who know theory and been in the game their whole lives, they take notice. They're like, what, wait, hey, what's going on? What's all this about drums and sheet music? So the dissenters, they start to vocalize their beef with everything. What's even on this paper? Drums are insensitive, the whole thing. So at first, more experienced musicians are getting, they're pretty gracious about it. They're like, well, you know, you may not be able to read the music, but trust us, that is music. You know, lots of people... They agree, and, and yes, drums can hurt your ears, that's true, but it's not necessarily a problem with the entire concept of drums, I don't know, but this only further frustrates the young musicians. Here we go, here we go with this legalism, again, all this backward, outdated thinking. So the younger group starts to form alliances. One of them publishes a book, Leaving Music Behind, My Brave Journey from Fundamentalism to Freedom, and the trained musicians are still cautious. They're like, well... Sheet music is not really fundamentalism, guys, but now the music deconstructionists are furious. So they start a podcast where they invite victims of drum volume to share their stories in a safe space. The rhetoric gets weirder. They say stuff like, for me personally, my truth is that musical notes are more like whatever you think they are. My chair is a musical note. And some of the musicians in the room, frustrated with the challenge of mastering their instrument, they're just hearing all this 
and they think, dang, maybe these guys are onto something. So the old guys say, listen, your chair is not a musical note. This has gone too far, and we're starting to get frustrated. People start to shout, I knew it. There's zero room to think and grow in this abusive environment. I'm leaving all of music behind forever. And they finally just get up and bail. Now, a few of them, after leaving, start a new band, a safe space for people who have been hurt by the last band. Some of the members believe in drums, but not those kinds of drums. A few others believe drums are whatever you want them to be. Others claim that music to them is whatever you decide it is. And they celebrate themselves for having no dogmatic doctrines whatsoever, despite the fact that, hilariously, all of those things are doctrines. They're dumb, but they're doctrines nonetheless. Now, <laughs> it's hard to take the wave of modern deconstructionism seriously when it doesn't seem to take itself very seriously. The romanticized notion that one can somehow deconstruct themselves into wonderful, fluid ambiguity is, a, I think, a fool's errand. Everyone, listen to me on this, please. Everyone has a theological position on everything. It may not be logical or carefully conceived, but you have them nonetheless. You cannot get around it. It sounds oh so 2019 to chase after a worldview that sits in the tension of lots of different modes of thinking and spirituality, but no one lives that way. At the end of the day, you have a theology and you have one on everything. Everyone is a disciple. The question is, a disciple of what? If you've been to Van City more than a few times or if you've been paying attention in the last 10 minutes... You may have guessed that the current popularized wave of deconstructionist groupthink frustrates me a little, but despite the sarcasm, the indignation I feel for the deconstructionist herd mentality comes from a place of sorrow. It doesn't surprise me that many bail on the way of Jesus, but it does grieve me, and I think it grieves God as well. I think of Peter's writing when he said that the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think of so much of the New Testament writing specifically instructing disciples of Jesus to pursue and chase after and fight for those who wander from faith. The book of James ends with these words. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's almost like this has been going on for a long time. And it's frustrating, but it's heartbreaking as well. As the world around us continues to oscillate in seasons of what feels like madness and mass deconversion, my hope and prayer for this church, for Van City, is twofold that this would be a place where we can build and rebuild faith and then practice that faith as an act of rebellion. Deconstruction at a popular level, the deconstruction by selfie level, is tragic and I think cowardly, but that doesn't mean that we, as disciples of Jesus, must somehow curate an environment of like stoic resolve, that we have to be afraid of questions and tensions and doubt, and we have to be afraid of wrestling with God and the Bible and with our theology. You guys, I hope, know where I stand on that. We have to wrestle with the text. We have to be willing to adjust and rearrange our theologies to keep sharp and open minds when it comes to following Jesus, to think well and to think critically about the things that we believe. We spend a tremendous amount of our time on Sunday evenings working our way through the Scriptures, 
this way. We spend a tremendous amount of our time in our communities having complicated conversations about doing difficult work on our personalities and our past and why we are the way that we are and how we will become the people of God and the people that God has called us to be. That kind of work is anything but closed-minded or intellectually stagnant, believe me. The willingness to wrestle with your faith, to build and rebuild, to evolve over time and to learn and practice loving God with all your mind is an inarguable component of following Jesus. You have to do that if you want to follow Jesus. We are not in any way afraid of questions and problems and doubt and wrestling because God isn't afraid of those things. He welcomes them. God is not insecure, and He made us. He gets that this is often difficult and confusing and that we are in process in our discipleship. As a family, we are agreeing to wrestle through this, but we are agreeing to do it together, to welcome questions and to encourage one another. We need disciples who are full of faith to lend theirs to those who are in seasons of doubt and seasons of spiritual drought even. We need disciples full of wisdom to speak truth to the lies that we are often tempted to believe at certain seasons of our discipleship. You may think that uh, you have little to offer in the way of spiritual gifting, but if you simply follow Jesus for the long haul, what Eugene Peterson called long obedience in the same direction, you can inspire a wave of fresh discipleship simply by your resilience in following Jesus to say, they haven't given up, and that really is enough sometimes, believe me. We need disciples who have been walking the road of discipleship for years or decades in our midst to remind us what faithfulness looks like over the long haul. Please, Jesus, bring us more women and men over 40 into our family. Amen. And uh, we need the Spirit of Jesus speaking through our brothers and sisters, words of prophetic encouragement, words of wisdom and knowledge every single week into our lives, week in and week out. I, every morning I get up and I sit and I listen for God's voice, and uh, it's a fundamental part of my discipleship to Jesus, but so is being here on a Sunday night and having someone say, listen, I feel like this is what God is saying to you, someone that has a perspective that I don't, ears that I don't. That's a crucial part of following Jesus. All of this becomes what I like to call faithfulness as an act of rebellion. So one more time, you still got your Bible, let's look at 2 Timothy, this time at the first chapter. 2 Timothy 1. Earlier we read from Paul's letter to his protege a warning and a reminder. He was kind of going on that Timothy should expect that the teaching of Jesus will be perverted by the pandering masses, that many people are going to bail out, that this is to be expected, not feared. I think of that line, they will gather teachers around them to hear what, or to say what their itching ears want to hear. But the letter actually begins by framing all of this warning and dire-sounding stuff as an encouragement. So Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 6, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, a different 
unique life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in King Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus the King. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I won't presume to know where this finds you in the moment. Maybe for you, the whole deconstructionist thing is the farthest thing from your radar. Maybe you've been there in the past and you're walking in faithfulness on the other side now. Maybe these questions are yet to come in your discipleship or you've asked them before and you're going to ask them again at a different season of your discipleship. But realize that the world around you will continue to deconstruct and to oscillate in its readiness to accept or to defy certain teachings of Jesus season to season. There are certain things that Jesus say that just always sound good to most people. Caring for the poor and the marginalized, Sounds great unless you're rich and you stand to be hurt by care for the poor and the marginalized if it affects your bottom line. Things like the sex ethic of Jesus are never going to sound popular in any kind of Western progressive culture. Things like nonviolence and enemy love, frankly, right now with the current socio-political vitriol, sound awful to the right and the left. We do not want to love and bless our enemies. But the teachings of Jesus will sometimes seem like the world is kind of open to them, and other times seem like everyone is against them season to season. The point is, either way, and no matter what, we will follow him. Bailing out is the easier thing to do. It's the status quo. It's the herd. Following Jesus is about rejecting the status quo, defying the pandering masses. We mourn deconversion. We lovingly and humbly pursue those who abandon the way, full of prayerful hope that they might return to the family of God. In the language of uh, James, that they will be saved from death. And here we make gracious space for doubt and questions and wrestling and process and people who are all over the map in their faith to Jesus, but who are here and are willing to build and rebuild faith. And in all of it, we are linking arms in full, faithful admission that though some may fall away, though we may stumble, though we will have questions and doubts, not if, we have seen Jesus and we will follow him together come hell or high water. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You do not have to do this by yourself. You have the family of God all around you and the Holy Spirit alive in you. So we need to come back to this space week in, week out, and look around a room, a room full of broken, imperfect people with their hands outstretched to God, singing and praying and listening and learning. And remember, right, I am not alone in this. I belong to a family, imperfect though they may be. Ours is a way of life, a kingdom 
that grows the world over for thousands of years, and I will walk this road with my brothers and sisters. Faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Let's pray and invite God's Spirit to fill us, fill us with a fresh wave of resilience and faithfulness in the season to come. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.